Good morning. Thank you for saying good morning to me. Um, My name is Nick Allen. I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills, um, and it's a privilege to be here in this spot today. Um, And and I always say that. I feel like it's redundant, but every moment that I have to come into this multi-generational body of Christ to open up God's Word that we might... Um, sometimes I say that we might examine it together, but more appropriately, it's better for the Word of God just to examine us. And, and I think that that's where we land today. And if you have your Bible with you or your mobile device or whatever it is you choose to use to read God's Word, I invite you to turn to Second Corinthians with me. If you've been here at all this summer, which we know we've had lots of vacations in the mix, way to go. If you've been here all this summer, you know that we've been camped out um, completely in the book of 2 Corinthians for all of June and July, and we're coming in towards the latter part of that by landing in chapter 10 today. And as you're turning there, I want to say that several weeks ago, um, uh, my wife Susan was hosting a gathering of women in our home, which she sometimes has a tendency to do, hashtag if table. And um, I did what good husbands do in those moments, which was to take my kids and leave the house and go to the Home Depot. Um, you don't take your kids there? It's really fun. They love it. Okay, so they like to get a paint swatch, um, and I let them because they're free, and they think they've gotten a prize, which is awesome. Okay, and so then afterwards, I decided that we had a little bit more time to kill before we bust up on the ladies' meeting, and that I would take them over to the new Spring Hill McDonald's, and um, where Simon could enjoy, he was happy to enjoy, um, a hot fudge sundae. They're only a dollar. Um, and my girls got to split a large frozen lemonade. They're seven and eight. We work on sharing quite a bit at the house, and I thought that this was great. Now, halfway into their little snack time fun, Simon made a mess, which he has a tendency to do. And I immediately said, Nora Blake, who was sitting on the outside of the booth, run grab another napkin for dad really quick. You know what she did? She took the frozen lemonade with her on the way to get the napkin so that her sister wouldn't take an extra sip while she was gone. Now, when she sits down, don't feel bad for her, Lily Kate proceeds to push her slightly on the shoulder and to snatch the frozen lemonade out of her hands so that she could get the big gulp. And I looked at my girls right there and under my breath said, oh, no, they did it. (laughs) I had a choice to make. I could leverage this great teachable moment as one of the many opportunities that God provides for me to lovingly discipline my kids in in a way that demonstrates the unmerited grace that God has given to each of us. Or I could go with my natural instinct, which was sarcasm. (laughs) Hashtag not my best moment. I chose the latter and responded by saying, grab it, Nora Blake, stick it to her, elbows high, hit it hard, grab it, you got this. And while my girls were looking at me with open mouth stares and unbelievable looks on their faces, I followed it up with, you got to get in there and be aggressive, girls. That frozen lemonade is way more important than your sister. And they looked at me and said, no, daddy. And they apologized to each other and said, my sister is way more important than this frozen lemonade. And instead of realizing that I had fully gotten the point across, I jabbed in a little bit further and said, (laughs) then why don't we act like it? (laughs) Not my best moment. I didn't want to lead with that today. I would much rather have come and told a story about something in my life where the Holy Spirit has led me down the path of rock star parenting, because there are a few, a few here and there, all credit to him. 
But the passage that we're going to be in today warrants something a little bit different. It warrants upending a little area of my weakness where something was out of my control because things had been happening in our house between the sisters, some lapses in good judgment, some illustrations of typical human selfishness, and I was teetering on the edge of impatience with their behavior. And we landed a passage of scripture today where the Apostle Paul is not that different. He's landed on an area of impatience with the behavior of the... Corinthian believers in Jesus Christ because while we looked at some encouragement along the way in chapters 1 through 7 and some instructions in chapter 8 through 9, now we're getting back to the sarcasm in his voice because while a large majority of the Corinthians in response to a really harsh letter that he wrote that we don't have, I'm kind of glad that we don't because I don't know that my heart could take it, um, we know that most of the believers in Corinth have repented of their sin and returned to right belief in Jesus Christ, but there remains a rebellious minority and Paul is just getting fed up. Second um, Corinthians chapter 10 through 11 is a couple of different things. One, very difficult to interpret. I'm glad that an NIV commentary told me that because I was starting to feel bad about myself and my lack of understanding for the scriptures. It's also among Paul's most sarcastic writings, which I don't necessarily get mad at because the art of sarcasm and humor is not lost on me. And it's also a chance for you and I today to look at the context of a writing as much as we do the content, which I think is important. I I know that there's a lot to be true about Scripture, but these are the two things that resonate the most with me. First, Scripture exists to tell us the story of God. It's the redemptive narrative start to finish. You see, I believe that the gospel is more than just four books. I believe that the gospel is 66 books of good news for you and I as a sinful people who've been met by a holy God out of his love and out of search for his father's glory offered Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. The whole picture is the redemptive story of God's people and we're living in the middle of that today. So it's the story of God. And then second, it's a recipe to equip us to be the people of God. You see, this book contains the instructions and the descriptions of what it means for you and I to respond wholeheartedly to God so that we could surrender and truly be his people. Every good study of scripture includes context. It's important because it outlines asking two very important questions for us. The first is, what does this passage of scripture say to the original audience who heard it? In this case, a church at Corinth receiving a letter from an apostle who started their faith. And then also, what does it say to me today, living in this age and in this culture and this time? And knowing what I know about the key narrative nature of God, I would propose that all scripture exists to bring him glory And to point me back to him, which when I am, he receives glory from that too. The tools provided in this work literally give us an opportunity to do something that I like to call Lamentations 340 work in our life, which says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. There's a great tension in church ministry. I don't know if you know that this tension exists. It's shared by Paul and it's really examined here Is the Bible for believers or unbelievers? Is Paul's message here for believers or for unbelievers? Is this church service that we're in this morning for believers or for unbelievers? I learned a lot in my first ministry job um, working at a parachurch organization about the types of unchurched people in the world, people who are unbelievers. They can fall into one of three categories. The first is uninformed. Those are people who just haven't heard the gospel yet. 
They don't know the story of Jesus. And the next is closed. Those who are people who have heard the gospel story of Jesus but have rejected it to a degree in their life. And then there are those who take it a step further and it's antagonistic. Not only have they rejected the gospel for their life, but they are a proud proponent of anything that is against the gospel in anyone else's lives. And isn't it odd that we always assume that someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior automatically falls into that antagonistic enemy category? When unchurched people stats across the globe would tell us that there are unreached peoples in whole countries um, and whole nations who don't yet have the story of Jesus interpreted into their language and who don't yet have a copy of scripture in words that they can read. And while the creation around them is screaming the name of Christ, they haven't heard the story of Jesus in the way that you and I have today. And in spite of everything I learned in that first ministry job about what it means to be an unbeliever or an unchurched person, I didn't learn very much about believers at all. Maybe they thought that I already knew that. Um, maybe I was a little bit too forward on my resume. I was a young minister, and they thought that I already had that on lockdown. Maybe they just planned on teaching me that thing through osmosis as we went through the ministry, and I would do some on-the-job training and learn that. But I have, in the last 15 years, come to be able to categorize believers in two ways. They're really present in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you skip to verse 4, we read a verse that says, We demolish arguments, verse 5, and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. The first type of believer is those who are fully surrendered. Those for whom every single thought and every single action, every single aspect of life is completely captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the second is found in chapter 11, verse 3. It reads, but I fear that, Paul is afraid, I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may also be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. If the first type of believer that we talk about today is those who are fully surrendered, then the second is those who are barely breathing. Those who've been steered in the wrong direction by the attacks of our enemy away from a pure and complete devotion to Jesus. Contextually, there's a really big shift in 2 Corinthians from chapters 1 through 7 and 8 and 9 and to the tone that we get in chapter 10. And I just want to warn you in advance that Paul is kind of sarcastic. A couple times he says that he's being foolish in his talking because he really wants to get the point across. Some scholars have attempted to pick apart these letters and say that they're not one and same. And the challenge is this, it's the same as us today, that Paul is really addressing two different audiences of people. Those who have returned to Christ and become fully surrendered and completely captive to the thoughts of Jesus and his lordship in their life. And those who are still rebelling in their immaturity and saying to themselves, we get to control, we get to decide, we get to determine what is right for us. And Paul's addressing both audiences, those who are fully surrendered and also those who are barely breathing. You can come to God's word today fully alive, completely surrendered, ready to eat off the great buffet that is his word. Take your pick, it's here. Or you can come to God today barely breathing, in need of triage. <laughs> somebody to suture up your wounds and send you down the hallway for an MRI to discover what in the world is wrong with life in Christ for you because something's not working. I know that today, when we enter into this room and this space and we open God's word together, we're surrounded by both. People who are fully alive in Christ 
completely surrendered to his work in their lives and those who are also just barely breathing. And it's, it's to both groups of people that I say welcome. And from what vantage point you come to his word today, we get to unpack these difficult words together. The false teachers have challenged a lot about Paul's gospel, and none of that has really worked. And so now they're in the middle of attacking him as a believer. And so we start with chapter 10, verse 1 today. It says, now I, Paul, in case you forgot who's writing this, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are walking in a fleshly way, in an unspiritual way. We got to unpack some difficult truths for us. And the first is this, it's in your notes this morning. There's a big difference between meekness and weakness. Paul's enemies are accusing him of being weak. What they're mistaking as weakness is really humility and spiritual strength. It's maturity. It's Christ-likeness. We know that meekness isn't weakness. It's really strength under great pressure. Paul has approached this body with all of the grace and all of the love that he can, and now what he realizes is that they might be in need of some more discipline. And he's saying in this passage that he's not afraid to bring it. You want to know why? Because these are his spiritual kids. These are his spiritual offspring. He led them to Jesus on a missionary journey. He planted the church in Corinth. He fueled it with leadership and he made deep investments at his own great personal loss and deep risk in order to see them grow and now he's being accused of not being a true spiritual leader in their lives a true spiritual apostle of Jesus Christ in their lives and he's about to say if I have to turn this car around friends I will because he's not afraid to pull it over and they don't think he's going to bring that Skipping down to verse 8, he says, For if I boast some more about our authority, which the Lord gave, the Lord gave me this authority. Why? For building you up and not tearing you down, I'm not ashamed. I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters, for it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. You know, he's heard the rumors about him, and they say that his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. That made me nervous about standing up to you today with my physical presence and my public speaking, but then I realized that that was a point of ego and pride and I didn't know what to do, and so I moved away from it. But I have wondered at time to time what my physical presence communicates about the gospel. If it's just so commanding um, that people have actually repented of their sin and turned to Jesus Christ and surrendered in believer's baptism because of the presence, um, that would be a bad thing. Or I've often wondered about the state of trendy pastors everywhere and been curious as to whether, you know, rolled up sleeves and dad jeans have ever been a stumbling block in someone's way from knowing Jesus a little bit better. I digress. Paul writes, is that it doesn't matter about my appearance. It doesn't matter about my speaking. It doesn't matter that you think that my letters are up here in strength and my physical presence is down here. What I aim to bring you is what the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down so that you can more fully become the church of Jesus Christ that you were intended to be. Verse 11 says, such a person, anybody making those kind of accusations should consider this. What we are in the words of our letters when absent, we will be in actions when present. See, 
we will be in actions when present. You wait till your dad gets home. That's a phrase I heard quite a bit growing up. I will turn this car, don't make me come back there. Paul's offering up some pretty strong warnings to anybody in the community who would question why. Why would he go that drastic? Why would he be that sarcastic? Why would he be that intentional about offering a threat to a church? You wanna know why? Because there was an enemy within. Because false teachers were accusing him of not being apostle and not presenting a clear gospel and they were tearing down other weaker brothers in Christ with them. This was war, not war with weapons like you and I know modern warfare, but war against an enemy, an enemy that we still face today who wants nothing more than to downplay the word of God in our life and to diminish its authority for how we should live and to dilute the capacity that Jesus Christ has to transform us more into his image. We still fight a battle today against an enemy who's using the false doctrines and the false definitions of this world to usurp the very clear present word of God in our lives. He succeeded in warping the mind of an entire generation to believe that we should abandon the supremacy of Christ in our life in exchange for a relativity that in no way bears the mark of Jesus. And against that kind of enemy, Paul was ready to stand up. His meekness should not be confused with weakness because he was anything but. And he was working out pre-fight, getting ready to tear down the false teachers that threatened to hurt his sheep. And he did it against strongholds. The second hard truth that we have to swallow today is that there are strongholds in our lives as well. Voices, issues, ideas, idols, habits, that exists to point us in any direction away from Jesus. Paul had no intentions of allowing those strongholds to go unchecked. There are moments in my life as a pastor when I wish that I had both the intuition of Paul to know where those strongholds exist and also the boldness of Paul to attack those strongholds in people's lives head on and to not be afraid to speak that kind of truth in love, not out of judgment, but out of concern. If you see somebody running into a busy street, isn't it our job to stop them? Nope, that's judgment. They can run into the busy street if they want to. No. Paul wants to help identify and then also eliminate any of those strongholds in people's lives. In verse 12, he says, for we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. I'm also alarmed when any of us want to compare ourselves to the rest of the world, because when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we might end up looking pretty good. But that's not the goal. I don't know who I truly am by comparing myself to a sinful world and thinking that I measure out on top. I discover who I truly am by comparing myself to the word of Jesus Christ and realizing that I've got a very long way to go. The false teachers questioned Paul's place, saying that he was stepping in too far and taking too much control and being too territorial in the lives of people and in the church context that he started. Friends, that's like saying to Pastor Jeff, if he wants to know what the lesson is that we're teaching in kids ministry today, that he has no business stepping into that world. Friends, um, if my senior leader wants to know what we're doing in kids' worship this morning or how much the animal crackers cost, I'm gonna go grab the lesson plans and my receipts. We also don't really serve a really dictatorial pastor who wants to know those things, but if he did, he's the Paul. He's the leader and he's being questioned in every term and his authority is 
being denied by people he actually led to Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, we however will not boast beyond measure, but instead according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. He's saying that God gave me this authority, friends, for we're not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you, as if we weren't the ones to come to you and bring you the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first place, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We are not bragging beyond measure about other people's labors, but we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged. If Pastor Jeff wants to know about kids' worship, it's out of concern because as that area of faith increases, we know that the whole church will increase. And if the whole church increases, the kingdom of God advances. And if the kingdom of God advances, that's a win for all of us. Paul had the same focus, his letters, his writings, his visits, his travels, his risks. Also, the church of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of number of believers in this region can multiply, and he would literally give up everything to see that happen. Verse 17, so the one who boasts must boast in the Lord, for it's not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Guys, God put Paul out there. Another hard truth that we have to swallow today because we don't want to offend anyone is that we really do have something to brag about. How about forgiveness, calling, appointment, God's approval, his purpose, his love, his vision, his church, a promised hope, a better future that is available for all who believe. We don't brag to highlight us, but to highlight the glory of God. Not in a, I got this and you don't kind of way, but in a God gave his glory, all glory to him. You can have it this way too. In the most basic way, Paul's enemies are questioning his calling and his place as an apostle. And for us to understand how much that must have really hurt him and pained him and caused him this level of strife, we have to kind of understand what apostleship is and what it meant to him. It's available all through the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1 verse 1, he calls himself Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. In this book, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. It's like his title, Nick Allen, family pastor. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 1, 1, I'm on a roll. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Titus 1, 1, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In nine of the 13 letters that we are sure that Paul penned in the New Testament scripture, he leads out with the title, calling himself an apostle. It's the essence of who he was and who he was set apart to be for Jesus. To take a stab at that was to cut and cut deeply. It was who Paul was in Christ. Who are we in Christ? What is an apostle? In the New Testament scriptures, it's a named gift, and it's also a named leader. It's both the office and the gift that the person in it held. And there is question as to whether or not apostleship remains an office today in the church. 
And to answer that, we have to know exactly what it means. And the first thing that we know as a real mark of an apostle is that it comes from the Greek word apostolos, which comes from the Greek verb apostello, which means to send off on a commission to do something as one's personal representative with credentials furnished. Who were his credentials furnished by? An apostle in New Testament context was one who was chosen by God. Galatians 1, 15 through 16 says, but when God who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the... Who does Paul credit for his apostleship? God. Chosen by God, also appointed by Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, it says, but I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Who do we say that God gives ministry to? those who received it as an appointment from Jesus. I was reading a guy named John MacArthur this week who I know is a little bit controversial, but from, you know, I'm way more Rocky Road than I am from Manila, so I try to read those kinds of things from time to time. In his blog series on apostleship, he reminds you that you can't declare yourself a ship's captain or an army sergeant or a medical doctor. Those are titles that are bestowed upon you because you were appointed to them by a higher governing body. You don't claim those kind of titles. They're rightfully bestowed on you. And the same is true of apostleship. It was to those who were chosen by God and appointed by Jesus. Peter lists in his credentials in the book of Acts chapter 1 that they must also be a witness of the risen Jesus. It was really important for those disciples to say that whoever was deemed an apostle in the New Testament church had not only been a part of Jesus' ministry when he was alive, but also seen the post-resurrected Jesus Because that resurrection is what gave credibility to Jesus and his ministry and his life and his purpose as Messiah. And so you had to have encountered that for the specific purpose of being called to preach, to teach, to make disciples, to perform miracles, including faith healing, and to also write scripture. So should we today expect that there are people in the local church who are chosen by God and appointed by Jesus to be apostles? Yes. Just not in the same manner as those original. We'll call them capital A apostles, and people today can be like lowercase a apostles, because scripture is clear. Those guys had laid a foundation for the church, and while we're still living in the apostolic age today, we're not laying the foundation of a church. We're building upon the foundation of a church that's already been laid. We get to be the faith-filled inhabitants of those church who continue the work of sending out and making disciples. How do we know this? Because there are other guys in scripture, Timothy and Silvanus and Silas, who are called apostles, but they didn't write books of scripture, and they didn't know Jesus before he died, and they didn't get to meet the resurrected Christ after he died. We know that those guys were called apostles too, and that today, apostles get to live and breathe and move. Some of you have been given the gift of apostleship because God has called you and sent you out into a community to go and to bring the good news of a resurrected Jesus Christ so that people can turn away from their sin and know him. Being apostle was on Paul's resume and you could not strike that from his record. False teachers be dismayed. That's who he was. He gives us more insight into his resume If you go down into chapter 11, we won't read the whole thing, but we'll start in verse 21. You learn a little bit more about Paul's credentials. He says, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly, sarcasm, I also dare. Ooh, he's going to dare them. Okay, here we go. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. 
Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 for you math majors. Three times I was stoned and beaten with rods. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and day in the depths of the sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Somebody forgot to tell Paul that it's a bad idea to list your incarcerations on your resume. Personally, I like to stick to degrees, awards, and positions that I've held that might be coveted by others. Like Paul, you and I have a ministry resume too. It's what we've been willing to give up for Jesus. It's what we've said yes to along the way. It's the gifts that we've been given and the calls that we've answered to serve him. But like Paul... Our ministry resume is probably not what we think. Our best ministry resume builders are often not the stories that we should lead with, i.e. my sarcastic parenting rant as a family pastor. But here's the deal. Sometimes, most times, God's best can be found in our worst. Paul summed it up like this. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses and checkmate. You know, I'm curious in my talk today if in the context of this writing, I am better cast as Paul or as Joe Corinthian believer. Like the earliest of church members, we have spiritual blind spots too. What are they? False teaching. We could succumb to false teaching just as easily as the Corinthian believers. Because the world around us would certainly have us believe that this word is false and not true and no longer applicable to life in this century. False teaching can be a blind spot for us. And the only way to recognize false teaching is to know truth. Feudal arguments, arguments that don't matter. The enemy would love for us to be tangled up in so many arguments with the world that we forfeit our ability to bear witness to Christ. When winning an argument becomes more important to us than winning a person, we know that we've already lost. When having the last sip of lemonade matters more than preserving a relationship, we're not accomplishing anything for the glory of God's kingdom. False teaching, futile arguments, and faulty logic. It's the kind of logic in you that says to trust your own instincts, which ultimately is trusting your own depraved, degenerate mind rather than rely on the word of God. What's next for the believer in Jesus Christ today? At first glance, that answer doesn't really seem to be present in these chapters. Or maybe it does. If you go back to some verses in chapter 10 that we skipped, starting with verse 3, let's read those together. It says, For though we live in the body, 
We do not wage war in an unspiritual way since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments. We read this before. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God taking every thought captive to obey Christ. It's the definition of the fully surrendered believer. And we are ready. We are ready to punish any disobedience once your disobedience has, obedience has been confirmed. Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. That's Paul. How many of us have read chapter 10, verse 5, and we have understood us to be at the center of that sentence, taking our own thoughts captive? Who is this about? Well, the subject is Paul and his partners in ministry, the apostles that he led with. They are the ones taking thoughts captive. How? Spiritual weaponry. I only know of one spiritual weapon because when Paul was writing to the Ephesians and he talked to them about the armor of God, everything was about defense except for one thing. It was the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible, which is the word of God. I learned something really great this week from a fellow named John Piper about how that works. You see, taking thoughts captive isn't a command, but a statement. Paul is the one, by the power of God, demolishing the wicked worldview of his spiritual offspring and applying that verse to them. He's not demolishing his own evil thoughts, but their evil thoughts and taking their evil thoughts captive so that they can become right thinkers when those thoughts are submitted to Christ. It's not about us applying this verse to ourselves. It's about us subjecting ourselves to that verse and to everything else in this world word that is like it to the entire counsel of God. That's really good news. That's great news. It means we don't have to do the work of fixing our own selves. We don't have to do the work of making up for our own mistakes. The Holy Spirit of God is ready to do that for us, and all we have to do is say yes. John Piper writes, we just submit to God's word, and the Holy Spirit will do the work for us. It's like saying, okay, God, here I am. Do your thing. Demolish me. Do your thought captive taking work on me. Destroy in my mind any false or proud or improper thought or perception that I have of you and truth in this world. I submit myself to you, God. Recognize anything that is like me. Because, listen, recognizing at the very least that there is some level of improper thought in my life is really, really modest. Because there's probably a lot of fractions of error in my mind. So, God, I eliminate them all and replace it with your right thinking. Scrutinize me with your word. And if anything at all is out of sync, God, let it be destroyed. Let us examine and test ourselves, Lamentations 340. And then what? Return to the Lord. So today, this word, maybe like any other word, is that we would return and repent. Sometimes we have to describe to kids what the word repentance actually means, and ultimately, it just means recognition that he is God and that we are not, and that his word is true, and we are to submit to it. That's the second answer. We return and repent and wholly submit. Could have saved a whole lot of time today if I would have just jumped there from the beginning and said, let's wholly submit ourselves to God. I could have started and ended there with the right redemptive story of God and the rightly rationed recipe for you and I to better be his people. That is not possible without yes. It's not possible without complete and total surrender. None of this. God's promises, we like to say that God's promises are for all people. God's promises are for believers. Believers. 
anyone can become one. But God's promises are for people who are fully alive, believing in Jesus Christ. That's how we take deep breaths. That's how we live fully alive as believers. Total surrender to the one true God and to his one true word. Sarcasm aside, lamentations, examination, all of that. Are we living fully surrendered, fully alive in Jesus? It's a good question. And it's one that we must answer. Holy God, may you take your word. And use it to transform our lives more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his holy and precious name that we pray. And to your complete and perfect word that we submit ourselves today. Amen. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you for participating in this corporate act of worship. More than anything else, this gathering of believers, wherever we are, is supposed to be ascending out so that we might come in here and be filled up and then sent out there um, to do the work of God in this world. Um, we come now to a time in our worship service where we take tithes and offerings because as believers, we bring an offering acceptable to God, wanting to give him our very best, knowing that he's given us, oh, so much more. And so we ask him to take these offerings today and to receive them um, as our act of worship to him. Men and women will come forward um, to collect that. And we ask God today collectively in prayer, Father, take these gifts and offerings and use them in miraculous ways to communicate your word to other people in the world so that you might be more known and more followed even today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Welcome to our Next Step Minute, a time when we highlight people who are taking steps in reaching out, growing up, and giving all as part of our 24-month church-wide Next Steps initiative. Today, we're talking about reaching out. You'll hear from Zach and Joe Hunter, as well as John Adam and Rick Bevels, as they share about their next step of serving together in the Amazon. This year, we will be doing VBS. We'll be doing home visits where we're actually be sharing Christ. We'll be doing food delivery because this is the time of year that the, that the Amazon's flooded. What made me want to go back to the Amazon this year after having um, gone last year was the people there and the, um, the way they're from a different lifestyle, a different culture, but they still uh, worship God with such a passion and so, so much joy even, when, uh, even in the midst of you know, sometimes not having a lot to be joyful about. I want to be the hands and feet of, of Jesus. I hope that everything that I do, that they'll see Jesus Christ through me, through Zach, through the group going. I hope something that I gain from being on the Amazon is um, an appreciation for what I have because one thing that people on the Amazon will teach you is that you don't have to have a lot to be joyous and to experience God's love for you. Having gone to the uh, Amazon last year, we were really excited to be able to return there this year. The area, even though they're unfortunate, a lot of flooding there, the people are so joyful and happy to see you. 
and open um, to your, your sharing uh, the gospel with them. I wanted to go back to the Amazon to reconnect with the people that we met last year and um, see some of the kids and some of the pastors and really just get to go back and see what we love down there. I'm really looking forward to being a part of um, a worship experience down there in the jungle again. Basically they take as many people as they can and pack them into the smallest little building that you can imagine and we sing songs in Portuguese and English and it all sounds like a blur but it's a really cool spiritual moment. As John Adams' dad, it brings me great pleasure to be able to go alongside him and see him serve the uh, less fortunate that are in need and uh, to see him be able to lead some VBS programs to teach these kids. To find out more about taking a next step in reaching out or opportunities to serve with us, visit rollinghillscommunity.org slash next steps. I love that. Um, this is one of those things that's worth bragging about, that we're a church who, uh, who's passionately concerned about um, reaching out to the world around us and um, that we get to equip and mobilize teenagers to do it. I'm so proud of our student ministry for being in Moldova and in Brazil this week. I'm also proud of these three little sixth grade guys sitting on the front row. Y'all are awesome. Thank you. Hey, guys. I, uh, I hope that today for you has been an opportunity to be filled up so that you can be sent out. Um, my advice to you this morning is if you don't have a passport, get one. Um, because when God calls and you say yes, you don't want to have to pay them expedited fees. So go ahead and get it now. <laughs> And be ready. This is a month in the life of our church where we're tapping people on the shoulder and we're saying, hey, how about worship one, serve one? Um, how about attend this corporate gathering on a Sunday morning, but then sticking around for another hour to teach and to love and to direct um, kids or students or finding a capacity to serve? And I just, I invite you to be a person who says yes, um, who wholly submits and surrenders to God's work in this community, knowing that every single opportunity that you have to serve is a chance to grow this body and God's kingdom, and that's a win. Say yes. Um, again, I hope that you're filled up, and I hope that you feel sent out. Um, if you're not, stick around for the other hour because we're going to do this again. I'm really glad that you were here today, um, and I invite you to go in peace, um, but also be ready for war um, and to fight the good fight of standing firm in your faith, fully submitting and surrendering to God's word and his work in your life. Good afternoon.